Introducing Slow Tide. People and brands send me a fair bit of product, sometimes hoping to develop a partnership, sometimes just as a thank you for the podcast. Slow Tide sent me some beach towels last year. They are the best towels I've ever owned, and I'm actually a little bit of a towel snob. They are soft and beautiful, yes, but it's more the little details. The leash string that they sewed on as a loop so you can hang the towel. The little leather Slow Tide branded patch on the corner. Um, I loved these towels so much that I actually purchased a few and then gave them as gifts for Christmas. Anyway, after a year of loving their product, we're finally partnering. They're supporting this show, and as a result, you get 10% off their website purchases. The promo code is PODCAST, and their website is slowtide.co, not .com, slowtide.co. Free shipping at 50 bucks, free tote bag at 100 bucks, and free returns no matter what. The oversized beach towels are amazing, but they also have bath towels, changing ponchos, yoga slash fitness towels, round towels, an unbelievable product line that I fully, fully endorse. And Earth Day is this month. At the end of the show, I'll tell you about Slow Tide's dedication to responsible manufacturing. Slowtide.co, promo code podcast. Additionally, in honor of Earth Day this month, and as a thank you to those who make a financial donation to this show, we're giving away a Maui Leaf Light surfboard from Timponi Surfboards. We introduced this last April. Jeff Timponi makes a line of boards branded Maui Leaf Light that use either recycled or solar-made foam, hemp and flax blended cloths, bio-based resins. These boards leave less of an environmental impact, are built for longevity, and they do not sacrifice any performance whatsoever. I know because I ordered one in October, surfed it through Maui and Oahu, and then back home here in California. And I want to get one in your hands. So whether you win this one or order one directly from Jeff, you should be riding one of these. When I ordered mine, I told Jeff that I wanted something rippable, but not a traditional shortboard. I told him that I had been riding a fish all summer at home. So just something that was fun and designed specifically for the waves that we would be surfing in and around Haiku Maui. And he absolutely nailed it with a 5.8 version of his model that he calls the pill. It's not quite a pill in outline. The tail is rounded, but a little bit more pin than full-on pill. And the nose too, not fully pointy, but just slightly rounded. And probably a similar amount of volume to what I'd ride in a proper six-foot high-performance shortboard, but just compressed down into 5.8. So paddles unbelievably, and it held totally fine in kind of shoulder-to-head high surf around Maui but it also has plenty of spark in the gutless waves around Huntington. So last year I published a chat with Tim Pony about that board's construction. You can go back and listen to that if you'd like. We decided that this year we'd rather dedicate that time to a broader message. Jeff Tim Pony's whole foray into the world of sustainable surfboard manufacturing is the result of his son Nick's influence. Nick got a BAS in Sustainable Science Management from the University of Hawaii Maui College. And living on Maui, they see the direct effects of careless waste disposal or careless tourists who treat the island like it's a rental. Jeff tells about when he moved to Maui in the 80s, the landfill was a hole in the ground. And now, 30 years later, it's turned into a hill that's turning into a mountain. So I've asked Nick to provide weekly sustainable PSA snacks just quick three to five minute chats about the misconceptions about the words sustainability, 
things that you shouldn't be worried about, and a couple of easy shifts that you can make that will ensure a healthier life and living environment for your kids and our next generation. So I'll include that at the beginning of each episode in the month of April. Here is the first, your introduction to Nick Timpone. Sustainability, a term that can be summarized as the ability to meet the needs of the present generation without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. It's a term often misunderstood, misinterpreted, and increasingly misused. We use this title when we're trying to gain that 30,000-foot perspective, which is useful to navigate a balanced existence between our economy, our society, and the environment. Note the human centricity of this conversation. Our anthropogenic views can only afford us part of the story, so we turn to our natural environment and the many other life forms that share and shape this planet for clues and deeper understanding. But the complexity can be overwhelming. While sustainability is used in many different contexts and applications, it's safe to say that ecological sustainability governs all and should be the focus of this topic. From this perspective, sustainability is never stagnant. The well-being of our planet is always in flux, expanding and contracting, and the pinnacle of sustainability is an ever-ascending summit that's not quite reachable due to the ever-changing nature of a biodynamic world. Think of the planet as our life source. For without clean air to breathe, fresh water to drink, arable soil to grow or graze on, and all the flora and fauna that keep this planet alive, we would have a very difficult time existing at current status, if at all. The health of our natural ecosystems, that is, the rainforests, coral reefs, prairies, wetlands, coastal estuaries, are at the heart of ecological sustainability. These ecosystems provide life-supporting services and regulations. Take, for instance, the naturally occurring filtration service of rain percolating through rock and soil, ending up as groundwater, a process that takes years as water slowly seeps into freshwater aquifers. Aquifers we then pump out to drink, water our crops, and flush our toilets. These acts take mere moments to execute, compared to the decades or centuries it takes to create these freshwater sources. Also think of the shoreline ecosystem actors, the trees, shrubs, and ground covers that retain the earth and soil beneath them. They are the best natural regulators of shoreline erosion, helping stabilize coastlines from high seas and flood events, allowing us to have parks, beachfront homes, and coastal highways right at the water's edge. As humans, we're the most impactful creatures in our environment. Like ripples in a lake, lapping up on its shores and refracting back to their source, our impacts can affect us in unforeseen ways. Our disruption of these ecosystems hinder their ability to sustain even themselves. To this point, we level hills and mountains for development or resource extraction disrupting natural hydrologic cycles and nutrient flows. We dredge or fill reefs and wetlands to make way for ports, harbors, and commercial expansion. We pollute our oceans, block our waterways, making the survival of keystone species difficult, if not downright impossible. We've all seen this, even if we have not recognized it. That beautifully groomed sandbar the old-timers reminisce on 
just hasn't been the same ever since the river was diverted all those years ago. Or that point break we hear mythical stories about ceased to exist after the break wall was constructed. Examples of our disruptions are endless and almost solely driven by economic opportunity. These are just a few instances of how we impact the world around us and how important our role is in this ecological equation. This whole sustainability thing is made up by us, for us. Not made up in the sense that it's false or fake, but created as a way for us to gauge our planet's limits and equilibriums. This is something ancient and indigenous people did with relative success. They had an innate understanding forged from generations of living close to nature, something we tend to fall short of in the 21st century. As surfers, like many other outdoor enthusiasts, we share an undeniable appreciation for nature, something special that draws us back to the shore day after day. Maybe it's just for the chance to get a few blissful rides, gliding freely on pulses of clean energy that travel across oceans to reach our shores, each one unique in their own way. Or maybe there's something deeper, connecting us through the experience of being fully immersed in the ocean, in nature. Whatever it is that keeps us in this daily cycle, we willingly miss work and school for it. We happily trade money for it. We travel great distances for it, build our lives around it, and even fight for it if need be. We have an unquenchable thirst for surf. It plays a very important role in our lives. The ocean provides an escape from our daily terrestrial grind, and at times seems like the only thing that keeps us sane. It's a curious human-to-nature relationship we have, well worth embracing and well worth exploring further. Thanks for that, Nick. As with every board giveaway we've done before, anyone who makes a financial contribution to this show in this month is eligible to win. You can do that on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. We have a PayPal button set up. A recurring $5 monthly donation is the most common, but any amount qualifies you to win. And more importantly, keeps these shows coming weekly and helps grow the network into the various other shows that we're now producing and more that we have on tap. I've got images of my Maui Leaflight board at that link. I love that thing. And now, the main course of today's show, a man who probably doesn't need much introduction, Darren Hanley of DHD Surfboards. He now has 10 world titles attributed to his boards, seven for Stephanie Gilmore and three for Mick Fanning. He is almost synonymous with the Gold Coast and the high-performance surfing that has defined the area at least for the past 20 years. I mean, that high-performance surfing's been happening there longer, but DH has been synonymous for the last 20 years. DH has also been a paragon for how to scale a surfboard manufacturing business, and he's in the running for the best surfer shapers out there testing their own wares. So, without further ado, I hope that you enjoy my conversation with the tireless, candid, mighty Darren Hamlin. I need an introduction. I have never had a Balter beer. Really? Do I start with Pilsner? Well, what time is it? It's two o'clock in the afternoon. That's right. <laughs> That's Pilsner on, should be, We should be on Captain Sensibles. They're the light one that um, is really nice, but I think that one there is like the 7% one, and this one, uh, the Pilsner, this is my favourite. Okay, so let me throw the seven percenter back in the fridge. <laughs> yeah, I'd we'll do start that. with start with the pilsner. Otherwise, this thing could get really ugly. 
Okay, which is perfect for the podcast. <laughs> Good little setup you got here. Yeah, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Alright then. Cheers. Darren, bang, cheers. Welcome to Australia. It's been a long time coming. It has. I've been um, tracking you, stalking you down the coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that time of the year where, you know, you you shape so many boards for all your team riders and you just follow them on the tour and make sure that all the hard work's been done. So um, some guys are doing really well. Some guys are having a bit of trouble, not with their boards, but with getting through heat. So it's uh, just really good to watch and you learn from it. You've been to a million events. Um, there almost, to be honest, doesn't seem to be a rhyme or a reason to some of the losses. Like... I'm watching the free surfs every afternoon out here. I won't name names, but like the guys who I think are the best, like everybody in the lineup's unbelievable. And then there's one or two that are just above and beyond. And then they go out and they get fourth place in their, in their heat. Yep. What happens? Yeah. I mean, yeah, the time of the clock can get them. Um, and if they're like, I'm, Pick Ethan Ewing for an example. Okay, that's the exact name that I didn't want to say. <laughs> I watch Ethan and I'm like, dude, he is 50%, 20% better than everybody else. Yeah, and but he's just having, um, you know, the waves are against him at the moment. Um, and he's just got to change that around. And we spoke about that just down the beach. Um, oh, we just had a little heat, me and Ethan together. And um, Jake Patterson said he's just not a magnet for waves at the moment, so we'll just turn that around and he's got the uh, wild card, not the wild card, but the in the trials for the snapper event and he's number third on the alternate list, so he'll get a couple of starts this year and we're having Jake Patterson in his corner, I reckon that'll be, you know, turn it all around. How demoralising is it for somebody like Ethan? Knowing that he has the talent that he has to kind of constantly be dealt, because you said he's not a wave magnet at the moment, but he had a shot on the CT and he still didn't have the, you know... I look, what I'm learning more and more is um, the older they get, the better they get. And he's only 20 years old and and most of these guys, you know, there's going to be kids that are going to qualify and they, there already is. You know, they qualify, then they fall off, then they have another go, then they'll qualify. But the guys really hit their strides, I reckon, when they're in the 24, 25. Jack Freestone, another guy that was went on tour, He's an amazing surfer, but didn't work it out, and now he's having another dig, and he should do really well as long as he puts everything together. He's got his family now, so it's. I think it's just the game that they've got to love the game and be there and surf and like the crowds and you know, especially Snapper, the first event, and I think they've really got to love the game and have the right equipment and, and just tick every box. And Mick Fanning's a perfect example. I've been dealing with him for, you know, I think uh, since he's been 13, so it's like 20-something years, and just watching how professional he was, and I'm just trying to sometimes take that and educate my my team riders on how he was so professional about surfboards, tick, fitness, tick, you know, and um, body, tick, you know, all those things. So just took all those things out of their mind and then they just had to wait for the waves to come and Mick knew how to do that, and that's why he won three world titles. Didn't fitness come later for Mick? did uh the injury was the right. was the best thing that sort of happened to him because it made him the fittest surfer he was already the fastest surfer then all of a sudden he was the fittest surfer was kelly was the only fit guy you're doing all the training that no one ever saw and he didn't let anyone know that he was training and you know he's so flexible and look at him he's 45 years old and 
you know, still on tour. It's amazing. You and know, no, still surfing out here. Yeah, and ripping. No, no one will ever do that. Um, I don't think they will, but... Um, but he, he's... Um, Mick Fanning got fit, and then all of a sudden he's with working with Nam and working with all these... Uh, Phil, his coach, and that was all of a sudden... That's how you have to be a world title, you know, in contention for world titles. And then all of a sudden... Now everyone's got coaches, fitness guys, you know, tra- all this different training. The Australians got the um, high performance centre, you know, we've got trampolines and mats and airs and, you know, surfing's just come a long way in the last um, eight to ten years. What was your very first memory of Mick? Do you remember the first se- your first kind of mm-hmm. time you saw him? So we were in the same board riders club, Kira Board Riders. Um, he was a kid, I was you know, surfing in the opens and stuff like that. And just the blonde hair that... He had a hairline that came down to his eyebrows. And but the blonde hair and the open arm turns that he used to do just went, this kid's got something. And I just really liked his style and everything like that. And um, we just went up to him. I think he was 13. I go, I'd like to make your boards. And he goes, that'd be sick. And then we just... Got a relationship going as a kid, and then I educated him because, like, the Mick story is just he spent more time in the bay than any other surfer I've ever had by I a didn't long know time. That. He comes in there all the time. He'll, you got to understand with these professional surfers, they they surf two or three times a you know a day when there's waves. We all go to work during the week. Mick gets up, there's a little wave. He'll have a surf. We're all at work. He's like. What am I going to do? I'm bored. So he rings me. I'm bored. And I go, oh, here we go. I'm coming up. So he comes up to the factory and I get, he goes, I want to shape a board. Or I want to watch you shape boards. And he used to spend time and time and time again. And even when I had Parco riding for me, they used to come up and shape boards for each other. And just it just taught them how boards are made and what edges do and what fin positions do and concaves. So... At that time, I could actually surf, you know, I was still surfing really well, and I understood it and taught it to Mick. Then he took it to another level, and then he was teaching me. Well, concave does this. That double concave did this. That edge going up that far did this. Um, Moving that fin back did this. So now he knows everything. So when he orders a board, he goes, I'll have the edge here, the fin there, the concave there. And now we've dialed his DNA board in so well that... He just wants little tiny tweaks every year and it's just been, you know, a board that's stable for him and now it's all these guys surfing in these events just go, just give me what Mick rides. Does it translate to them? It does because they translated to the way Mick was winning con- winning heats and contests. You know, take off, big rap, you know, it just doesn't translate to the guys that do airs because, you know, that's a whole different ball game that you know, Mick, Mick isn't the air guy even though he's retired now he's doing more airs now he's retired than he was before it's so. so it's funny that you say that um, Mick is that sophisticated when it comes to board design because in the stab in the dark piece this year mm-hmm. I felt like he was particularly inarticulate like he just kind of said ah, this board's pretty good yeah this one's good too that one that's pretty good like he didn't really have a lot of critical analysis of the various boards and it's great to watch mick rip on a bunch of different boards but i didn't learn anything about what the nuances were between those boards well i mean mick's a person that you know doesn't make mistakes in life of 
but he he doesn't want to do like yeah. If you watch Geordie in the Stab in the Dark, he's going that was a waste of a grip. You know, he yeah. was he ripped into people, which um, which was good and bad. That yeah, but that's the that's the risk you take by going in the Stab in the Dark. You know, it's you sit there biting your fingernails, going oh, I hope they don't you know do bad say bad things about my boy because it's personal. We we. You know, that's, that's our career, that's what we do, so we put our heart and soul into it. But Mick said, you know, with all the boards, they were all good. Some were just more flexy than others, um, and he doesn't like too much flex. So, And he's never really been – well, he hasn't. He's been – hates epoxies. But he did learn some stuff on epoxies, which he came back and told me that I've learnt this, and that's why – I mean, I got disqualified um, because he knew who my board is, but that's fine. I, that doesn't bother me because – we learnt stuff in the Channel Islands that won the um, Stab in the Dark. That was the most stiffest board out of the whole whole thing. So that's why he, you know, elected that board because everything else he'd push down and the thing would just bend and then he'd have to wait for it to come back before he could do his next turn. And that was what I was trying to do with my board with him is just I knew he liked stiff boards because they've got to feel like the boards that he's growing up along with stringers and make it feel like that. But now with the new generation of kids, they're all growing up riding epoxies without stringers in them. So they're used to that more flexy sort of board. So next generation, gonna be riding a lot more you know, epoxies, especially in waves like where, where we are today in Manly. Yeah. What are your thoughts on um, the values and the limitations of Stab in the Dark? I personally see as an entertainment piece it's great, and I'm thrilled to have it. I'm glad that they do it. But I also recognize um, there are a lot of limitations to it, and everybody's got feedback for how they can improve it, and blah, blah, blah. But what are your thoughts? Um, you're only as good as the last board you shaped, so it keeps you on your toes. So you really got to make sure that you put a lot of effort in. I've heard that Hayden takes a long time to pick the right ball that he wants to put in, and he gets really nervous and stuff about it. I just shaped the board... Yeah, for everyone and go, that'll do. I, I know whether, you know, concave, fins, rails, volume, length, width, that's it. I'm not going to go and change my whole design. I'm just going to give them something that I make and and hopefully that surfer likes that board. But, yeah, look, talking to retailers that sell our boards, they'd like to see it a little bit different, that there's stuff that they'd love them to come in and blind them and, and go and picking boards out of the rack and going which one do you want so that they're actually going ride the stock boards that the uh, that the public ride which is you know glassed a bit heavier um, fins where they are so they want it to relate back to them um, just to the general public that are right. you know that are buying all these boards from us so that's where if they could work out that that'd be a good thing um, and then they got the acid test or something like they're doing. Steph Gilmore just did that. Mm-hmm. And um, I went and saw all the boards that she was riding and um, and she was like, she's got a, a Defender 8 world, eight, the seventh world title coming up and she's riding twin fins and single fins and and the waves were pumping at Kira and she's just like, oh, I wish I could just ride my normal board. But to answer your question, I just think that the the stab have got it really, really good in the surfers that they pick, and I, you know, I heard they've got some, you know, other surfers that want to line up for it. But I just think it's got to relate to the public a little bit more because everything we're riding, that those surfers are riding, the public don't buy. You know, little 
you know, speed demon surfboards. That's why the the uh, acid thing is sort of, you know, that sort of relates to the public a little bit more. Yeah. When you look at uh, Stephanie taking a break from writing high-performance shortboards to go do something like that, do you think it's actually helpful to her title campaign or detrimental? Uh, is it helpful? Nah, it's helpful, but she just did it too late. Okay. They too went close all, to the season. They went all the way to over Africa somewhere and they got skunked. They didn't get any waves. So she had to come back and do it here. So that just really chewed into her time. But, you know, she's an amazing surfer and she's got good people in a corner. So she'll she'll bounce back. That's if we get waves at Snapper this year because there's, right. you know, there's... Um, not too many banks yet. We just had the, the great swell of the of the year. So, yeah. uh, do you remember the first time you saw Steph? Um, yes, the first time I saw Steph was at Greenmount when before the Superbank. And same thing, blonde hair. You know, she had hairy white. She's going to kill me for saying this. <laughs> <laughs> um, white hairy arms, and she just. You know, wore board shorts and surf like one of the boys. And she was one of the boys. And she just used to put time and time in the water with her dad. And there was a girl called Karina Petroni that was doing the um, – well, she was living here with her brother and um, and they were surfing. And she was buying boards from me at the time. And, and she's going to Steph, you should get one of Darren's boards. They're really good. And I don't even know what she was writing before me. I, I can't even remember that. And then she came and saw me with a, you know, all the zinc on and stuff. And I made her a board and made her a couple. And then we had a great relationship as well. And she just said, just make me one. Yeah, Mick rides. But I've got some of her old boards that I wanted to surf again because she was riding six ones when she won the first snapper. Really? Now she rides five tens. And the same with Mick. Mick was riding six ones when he first came to me. Now he's five tens. So that's how much surfing has changed and the rails are so low and the noses are so flipped and yeah. but that was Queensland and what that's what we made back then but it worked for them because they they surfed those beautiful waves and any good waves they could really you know rip in those in those sort of boards so you actually ride Stephanie's boards I don't anymore okay but I used to be able to ride well I can still ride mix because he's he rides at less volume than anyone but I can still ride mixed boards like I just had a surf with Ethan then, and you know I rode his board, but it just felt too loose for me. But it's still, you know, I can still paddle out on. I can still paddle out on mix, and I think that's good for me. That you know I'm quite old now, but I can still paddle and still keep my fitness up. You know, being this age, so it's been good because I know what it feels like to take off on a board, not to do what they do, but just to actually feel how the concave and the fins and the and everything goes. What it, what was the difference when you met? Um Mick and Stephanie as compared to a lot of these other young kids that you're working with? Um, the, the biggest difference was I was, on a, I was on the uptake going, here we go, I'm just about to become a shaper. There was no good shapers around. Everything was flat. I was working at Pipe Dream. All boards were flat. So, and I was working with some reasonably good QS surfers at the time and I was at starting to become a great shape or good shaper. And these guys were starting to become good surfers and we just met each other at the right time. And that was the reason why they've done as well as they've, they've done and that's why I've done as well as I've done is because we just we just fitted 
like a glove to each other and it was really good. Our relationships uh, out of the water is incredible. You know, I spend a lot of time with Mick and I spend a lot of time with Steph and they trust me and um, and I you know, and I trust them in all the feedback. Like Mick's ripped into me before, like with boards when he was, you know, he hadn't won a world title, but <laughs> there was this one time I wasn't there, but he went into the into the glass shop where you know we made boards, and he come in and he's they've rung me and said you got to you got to call Mick, he's not happy, and I go what happened? And they go and he kept on punching in his tails. This is before carbon came in on the tails. He kept on punching in his tails, and he goes he come in and goes if you guys can't get this right, I'll go somewhere else. He goes you know how long it takes me to put the stickers on these boards, <laughs> and I'm like God. All right, so I, we went and worked it out and put extra. Cause there's no carbon, but you know it was just fiberglass. So we put extra uh, cloth on them and we fixed that time. But Mick, Mick's he he he's in the bay and he makes sure that he gets his, his surfboards right. And it took it took a good five years to really have it dialed perfectly. Mm. And then after that five years, I was happy for him to ride Coro boards and a few mayhem boards because all it done it taught me um what he little things out of them it was in the stab in the dark little things out of them that that i go oh that's interesting and then he'd, he'd give me the mayhem board and i'd ride it because i can ride that so it was a uh, kolohe board i remember that yeah and you know it had those tuck rails and i'm like oh i feel how that releases but that's not good at snapper because you don't want the release because the waves are, you know, but I can see that at trestles. That'd be really good, you know. So we tried it and goes, no, nah, it's, it's good, but not what we want. But, you know, we, we go through all those stepping stones to get him exactly what he wants. Those early initial meetings with both Mick and Steph, was there something in their DNA where you knew, like, okay, this is the golden child that will win a world title? Or did they develop whatever that world championship ability is over the course of the next few years? I think with Steph, she had the ability that was you know second to none at that time. You know, she was she was such a better surfer than most of the people around. Um, she was savvy. She wanted it. She was hungry. But with Mick, he grew up with in Coolangatta. And, you know, every, if you know a Coolangatta, everyone's got a nickname. There's not one person that uses, you know, another name. So, yeah, you got Paco, Dingo, and there was another guy, Dean, uh, Dean, not Dean, um, Harvey, um, Damon Harvey. So they were the four Cooley kids. So they were pushing each other and pushing each other. And in the end, the, you know, the three of them came out like the Cooley kids and they did this movie. And so if they didn't have that rivalry, I think that was what pushed Paco and Mick to become, you know, Paco got his world title and Dingo was on tour for a long time, great surfer, but that banter that they had and that thing of Cool and Gatta, and that's why everyone sort of started moving to Cool and Gatta. You know, Luke Egan moved up here, Oki moved up there, um, you know, just to name a few, because we had great waves and we had great shapers and, and just, just it was just a great place to grow up. Yeah. I want to transition a little bit to talk about um, the business of building boards. There's been a million great shapers, not a million, there's been a lot of great shapers. By the way, help yourself when you're ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, um, I'm Australian. 
there's been a lot of great shapers over the years and being a great businessman is a totally different skill set right and there's not a lot not very often where you've seen somebody do both things successfully anyways and um you've scaled your business really successfully and it seems that the quality has not been compromised regardless of where the boards are built or available throughout the world you're able to get a good dhd off the rack anywhere in the world um Let's start with what is the current business model? Where, what is your role on a day to day? And then secondly, where are the boards being built around the world? Okay, long question. Yeah, we got time. <laughs> um, like I haven't got it right all the time, okay. but I've got it right now. Okay. So we had the base um, concept a long time ago with me, Morris, Murray Burt, and Simon S. We all grouped together, and we had all these strong figureheads and great business idea um and but just we just we just spent a lot of money and, and it just didn't work you know and in the end um it went bankrupt um most of the shapers just rolled up their sleeves and went all right didn't work so let's get back into you know getting our brand back and and going again but i think the secret now for me um i've got business partners which i've always wanted to have business partners because i'm great at what i do amazing at shaping boards and looking after team riders and being at the beach and and having relationships with them but i can't do that if i'm worrying about who hasn't paid that account who hasn't did that who's god can you look after this customer and stuff like that so i've got really good um people that are running my business um on a day-to-day with you know sales guys it's in surfing business now it has got a lot bigger if you're in the right right part you know that we got all these shapers but we're in that like the channel islands and the js's and the firewires in the world you've got to have a good structure behind you and we've got an amazing structure behind us and they are incredible at doing it so they free me up to do what i need to do and i watched rusty years ago when he went out and started doing clothing and all that sort of stuff what happened is he must have put so much time into his clothing that his surfboard business went nearly kaput, you know. And so I went, if I ever get into apparel and clothing, which, you know, I haven't, I've got to make sure I concentrate. And that was always in the back of my mind that I've got to concentrate on the surfboards because I can't live that far because that's the key. So they've just said, you know, these people that I've got running the business, do what you do best, shape, design, hang with team riders we'll look after the rest and i went perfect but that's one part but then you got the surfboard part and i've got 18 guys that work for me in my um factory my son um he's 26 years old he runs the factory with all these mongrel mob i didn't know that and most of the guys have been there for 15 to 20 years and so i and all of them have been taught from me i haven't gone and Oh, this guy from here or this guy from there. I've got a few guys that come in and, you know, help out. And, and you know, I've got a Brazilian guy out there at the moment doing a little bit of sanding for me. He's really good. But most of the guys I've taught. So I've got this base of guys that they love the game of surfing. They love watching surfing. And they, they, they make sure that the boards are perfect. And I don't have to worry about that thing as well. So I go and... I just shaped a board for Mick at nine o'clock in the morning. It needs to be ready at 3.30 this afternoon. Yep, no worries, Darren. I'll have it run, ready. And 
that's the sort of pe people they are. So that's been really good. And then we make boards in Bali, um, which has been doing that for quite a long, long time, and that's good because I'll go over there and spend some time and surf and just check out that operation. They do about 800, 600 a year. The Brazilian guy that makes our boards, because you can't export boards to Brazil because of the taxes and stuff, he's been doing them for about 14 years, so it's been a long time. And where else do we do them? We tried Europe. That was a failure. And now we just uh, send boards to Europe all out of Australia. What's the problem in Europe? Um, I just got with a guy that was the wrong guy. Okay. And we did it, do it with Rip Curl before um, in France. And I, that was really good. When I was young, I was traveling to France. Me and, that's where me and Belly um, are really good mates. You know, we first went to France together working with Morris Cole. That was you know, a great time of our lives. And... Um, I did that for a long time, working with Rip Curl and, and working for Morris. That was pretty cool. And and then now we just export to, you know, because the dollar in Australia is really good to do that. And then we make boards in America as well. And we've had the, a guy, Brian, over there that's a really good shaper and a lot of the, you know, the guys um, get the boards from over there. So, But America's hard, you know. Why? Uh, I'd have to ask my other team. <laughs> but no... <laughs> Because I think it's hard because um, uh, it's hard because I think the Firewires, the Merricks and the Mayhems, they just want to be number one in America and they went all on consignment and it's just, it was like a race to the top or an ego thing and it's not a really good business plan here. Australia, that's why Australia is doing so well in the surfboard industry because we've got shops here that have... Rackboard's really good, have good margins, and they actually make uh, make sense to have surfboards in their store and actually make money out of them. Where in America, I feel like it's a lost leader, and they're just too cheap, and what we wholesale... If I owned a surf shop in America, I wouldn't put surfboards in, I'd just put clothes in it. Right. Um, but we're looking at different models of how to do it. You know, we're at the moment, we're just selling um, online, and online is, you know... It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It's, I mean, the online surfboard business is one sector of online business that's been slow to actually grow, mm -hmm. simply because shipping costs, obviously, yep. make it prohibitive. I think one detail in California that's different for retailers is you get a lot of consumers buying boards direct from the shaper, mm -hmm. so they actually subvert the retailer. Yep. They'll just go to their local guy. And by the way, Mayhem is a local guy for a lot of them. You yeah. Know? So... I, I just can't see the longevity of that. I can't see where it's going to... You know, you, you're asking this guy to fork out for all these you know, 100 boards in their store and then you're selling them cheaper in, out of your factory because you're making more money. And, and So I, I'm not there to you know, save America or do anything like that. All I'm there is just going, America's hard and we're looking at just selling online and doing a few things. Well, I don't think we do. I think we do with like three shops. Is and that all? I think maybe five. Wow. And that's only because I can, you know, they all still write checks out in America. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just imagine that guy writing out a check going, oh, DHD, Australia, we'll, we'll wait for them. They'll, yeah, they, yeah. they got a ring from Australia to get that money. <laughs> yeah. Well, another detail that you alluded to, it's come up a couple of times on the, on the podcast, but is the consignment model. So what a couple of these large kind of um, 
brands have been able to do is say, hey, retailers, if you're having a hard time paying those bills, this is mostly post-recession, but if you're having a hard time paying those bills, here's 50 boards that we'll just put in your shop. There's no invoice. Once you sell one, Mm -hmm. then we'll give you 30 days to pay it or 60 days to pay it or whatever. So the the shop owner, there's no um, downside to that model. Why don't you go ahead and just bring those boards in? And But what it does is it undercuts the traditional business model where all the other backyard built, not backyard builders, but all the other builders who had room on those shelves and expected to get paid the day they drop or within 30 days of dropping off those boards now don't have that shelf space. Mm. So it's all in flux right now. We're not sure how it's going to shake out. Um, it's fully understandable that the retailers would want those consignment boards on the rack, but what will this do to the business in 10 years from now? Yeah. And you can answer that question today. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I make that move. But when they're putting them on consignment, they're asking for more margin and the shops already don't get enough margin. So it's even makes it worse. So, um, but then, you know, don't get me wrong. There is some good really retailers out there. There's a couple of good ones that do do it like Australia, but, um, you know, they're going, people are putting them in consignment. I don't have to pay that 50 grand of surfboards until I sell one. That's unreal. Yeah. But the thing is, is that, we started going, well, we're not doing the consignment thing, so we're putting in, you know, not we don't have 50 boards there, we've only got, or 100 boards there, we've got 20 boards in there, but we've got an invoice at 60 days. But he has to pay that bill in 60 days. So regardless. Regardless. And so do you think he's going, better sell the DHs because I've got to pay this bill. Don't worry about those ones. I've got to pay this bill. It's go, I've got... 15 days left, so can you sell another three or four just so I, I break even and get me money? So we started doing that, and that was really good. Um, but, you know, the American, uh, I make pretty, you know, uh, rocket ships sort of surfboards, you know, and it's only now that I'm diversifying into more boards like that they like in America. Like my twin fin in America sells really good, sells amazing over here. It's like our nearly our best um, board. Having Asher Pacey and that riding that board. He's killing it on that thing. And oh. I've seen Ethan riding one out here too. Yeah, I, I, Jake was actually saying, tell Ethan to ride it in his heat. Yeah. But yeah, the twin fin thing was having Asher is like having a Mick and a Stav. Is it? Because he loves his twin fins. He, he'll he never ride a thruster again in his life, he said. And he said, I might ride a quad. and But you should see his, like the demo boards that we make for him, we put fins, we're glassing fins in, ripping out, just to get the fins in the right spot. And then channels and all that sort of stuff. So we rip into his you know, demo boards before we go, all right, that's that's the ball we, we're going to do with Asher. We've only done two with Asher and the other twin fin, the original one was just one I did with Steph. She rode that in that proximity movie. Oh, yeah. She ripped on it. Yeah, yeah. Kelly actually said that she should ride that in the contest. Yeah. Um, I interviewed Scott at Kinner Road. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'll publish that before your episode or after. Can yep. you tell me, in case I publish it after this episode, um, can you tell me what Kinner Road is doing? Tell me about their robot, how it's an improvement upon the traditional CNC machine. So Kinner Road came to us um, about three years ago, told us this robot does it 100%. Shapes the board 100%. Shapes the board 100%. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. So we went and had a look and 
I gave him a file and you know it ripped into it and and you know the, the the machines were really expensive. You couldn't buy a machine, so you had to you know work with them and stuff like that. And the business model wasn't that good um, for us at the time because one, as I said before, I've got all these shapers and glasses and sanders that have been working for about 15, 20 years that you know. I didn't want to, you know, say, oh, there's a robot now that I don't have to shape it. And people still want, you know, me to hand shape and touch a board. You know? But those people that want me to do that want us to want to pay $350 for a board, you know. So, um, But it's really good technology, the way that they're doing it. And a lot of uh, – I don't do any PU out of it. I do all my epoxies out of it. And, and I just think that um, it's only as good as your design. Um, so I'm learning more about design and about um, my laptop and, and the 3D um, design um, program because of that machine, which is then going back into my normal PU production and making me a better designer and stuff like that. Because in the end, I'm actually not – I'm a shaper, but I'm actually becoming more of a designer. I mean, DHD stands for Darren Hanley Designs, and that wasn't done at the start because of this, but that's what I'm actually becoming. I'm becoming really good on my computer to actually do these little things and listening to what the surfers want and listening to um, those little things and then transferring it into the into the cut and then into the shapers to make sure that not just Mick and Steph and the rest of the team get big boards, but the public that are paying you know, eight $900 um, for a surfboard. But the Kinder Road thing is really good program where it's going to go from from you know i'd love to be able to own one of those um machines to play with it but whether they're going to be other sandboards with that eventually i think that could happen whether they can glass a board so it becomes a turnkey plant is that going to be the future i think shaping uh and the sport of surfing is the only uh, sport that the product's still handmade it's the only one so and i'm sure um, everyone wants to get it off that and you know, make some money out of it because we, you know, we don't make amazing money, but we are the ones in the surfing industry that get the least amount of money compared to you know, everyone else. So Kinder Road could be one of those steps that help us, you know, help us make more consistent and great product. Um, and that's all it is. All I want to do is make beautiful boards. I don't, you know, my. Sh- if Mick Fanning wanted a board on Monday and I'd been out Sunday night with the family having a few drinks and a few wines and I was hungover and I'd go, oh, I've got to shape this board, I don't feel like shaping it. It's not going to come could, you know, come out as well. Yeah. The, the robot's going to go, I didn't go out and drink. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready to do whatever you tell me to do, so just push the button and here I go. So I, the, the robot routes fin boxes and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you glass the board straight off the robot? Mm-hmm. The stab in the dark board was off the robot. Amazing. Oh, I shouldn't say that, but anyway, it is. I'll cut but it. I'll I cut did, it. No, no, yeah, it's fine. But I did have to touch that. Okay. Um, I did have to take the rails down because my designing wasn't good. I was good, but it wasn't as good. So, uh, but I just knew that this is, the, because it's an epoxy thing, that he does, a, the robot does a better job than I can because epoxy's hard to show. Right. So you said um, you're spending more time kind of as a designer than a shaper. Where is your time best spent? Um, my best, 
I spend like I think you asked that question before. I don't think I answered it. Was you know what do I do on a day to day basis? Yeah, that's right. So I didn't answer that question. But so my day starts like this. Um, reasonably early. Um, I try not to surf too early because um, you know I'll, I'll wait till all the workers go to work. So and then I go surfing. So I usually get to the factory sometime between five thirty and seven thirty in the morning, and it starts with. Um, you know, just checking the orders that were put in that day, going through all the orders, doing all the designs and making sure they're all right. By that time, you know, the shapers and everything are going through and I'm just picking up shape blanks and feeling them, moving them around and, and just working with the... Excuse me. Working with the, the four shapers I have, making sure that, you know, they're doing everything right. And downstairs where they blast the boards that i don't have to worry about that they just do that sometimes they'll have a little problem about you know the bit of dirt in in one of the boards or um you know some little problem but that's not very often and then once that's done um depending on the surf i'll if there's not much surf then i'll jump in the bay and do some team boards um and if there is surf then i'll call mick or staff or whoever's around and go let's go surfing and then we'll go and surf for I only surf for an hour, hour and a half, and then I'll come back. And once you've surfed, your hands have got this salt, not salt water on them, but they just feel better. Hmm. And that's when I feel like it's really good. And that's when I love getting in the bay, turning on some eighties music, and and or if there's a contest on, and watch the surfing while you're doing it. And then I just shut the door, air condition on, music on, shapes and boards, and and you know do that, and then. Maybe a late surf if it's good, and if it's not good, just you know, just chatting with the boys downstairs, or then I'll go over to the office and find out what's going on. Yeah, you didn't allocate any time for design. No, the d- designs first. The designs the first thing. Yeah, because I print out the order forms of, that have been put in that day, and they're first to go to the, the to the thing. That's Got the it. first thing, and when I come to these events, yeah. Like everyone thinks, oh God, you got a great life. You go to this event, this event. But when I go home after this, I pay for it because I've spent three days here. And on Monday, when I get home, I'm going to pay for it because I'm going to have backup, a backup of all the stuff that I've got to do. And then I've got the team stuff that I've worked out here. And then I've got meetings with like shop team and other team riders that yeah. you know want to change this and want to get an epoxy and so. I pay for it when I go back, so it's yeah. not all. It's not all great. No. Um, what do you view as the biggest threat to your business currently? I mean, you've gone through a couple of decades where there's been various kind of industry shifts, but what do you? What's the biggest threat currently? Um, I mean, the American dollar can be bad for us. Um, you know, we do make um, epoxies in Thailand. Uh, that seems to be the the norm for the, you know, Firewire Mayhem. Where do, uh, where do those boards go? Uh, they go back to Australia. Uh, they also go to all the European countries and stuff like that. But they, those guys make like thirty, fifty thousand boards a year. Their, their quality is just unbelievable. Is it really? It's unbelievable. And you know, but it's only good because we go there and make sure that it's good and make you know, make sure that you know the edges are sharp enough. And because, but they've got really good people running that business as well. And it's been a really good model because we, if it was America, it'd be different. America makes a lot of good epoxies. But in Australia, we just don't have the facilities to make epoxy boards. Kenner Road. 
Yeah, but it's 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 uh, they can uh, they can't make the masses like we want. They're limited. They're limited by by a long way. And it was my idea to tell um, Scott at Kennel Road that that you needed you need a glassing company. And I've told guys that have worked for me, open up an epoxy thing, you'll kill it. You know, you'll do two hundred boards a week. That's a good business. You don't have to pay for team riders or anything like that. You just just tick it over, tick it over, tick it over. And and he's done that. And um, but I think the you know, with the He's doing a lot of the Merricks there as well, those um, spine tech boards. So, right. but it's limited um, because there's a lot more people riding epoxies because the people out there that aren't as good as all these guys and just need all the paddle power they can get need to ride epoxies because they're not rip, they're not ripping on boards. They just they want a board that they can paddle out, catch waves, make it easy for themselves to surf, and that's what the epoxies are doing for them. Why is Thailand able to do it successfully and? Australia isn't. Thailand can be successful because they're doing doing it for so long with the whole windsurfing and everything. It's, you go to that factory, it's incredible. But Australia, because we just don't have the people that are working with, with epoxies, um, resins, and um, you can't mix it with your PU resin because you get allergic to it and you, you've got to look after your workers. You so that's the concern. When people talk about being concerned about outsourced boards, I don't think that they think... Um, Asian-made boards are inferior to domestically-made boards. I think it's more an issue of we don't know how they regulate their businesses. We don't know what their waste disposal practices are. We don't know um, what their employee treatment standards are, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And that's, that's you know, we've got to get better at that, um, not just us, the whole world. What's um, your impression of it, having visited the factories? Look... Some factories are better than others, um, but the regulators aren't coming down heavily heavily on us yet. In New South Wales, they're pretty bad. Some 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 businesses have been shut down, um, and then as far as our waste and stuff like that, we're buying all this stuff from these blank companies that are making you know, lots of money. They supply us with blanks. They supply us with resin and. They supply us with a lot of stuff. They've never put anything back in the industry. They don't you know, sponsor any surfers or they don't give us anything for free. And we've made the business of surfing and they've just gone, how good is this? You know, well, look at all the money I'm making and all the factories I'm owning and building and stuff like that. And as shapers, we just, oh, I've got to pay that bill, got to pay that bill, I've got to have that surfer because we, you know, our pride is about you know, how good our surfer and how good our board is. So we just... Tick along, we, we work really hard and, you know, we end up buying a house and we end up, you know, just living a normal life, whether we're like an electrician or a plumber or anything like that. We're not, we're not special like, you know, some people try to think shapers are this, put, them, put ourselves on a pedestal. We're not like, we're just like the best. If you're a good plumber or a good electrician, you know, you can own your own business and, and we're, we're the same, yeah? Yeah. But we too make world titles, world champions, which is not what happens, you know, with electricians and stuff. But those people and the, the company that I deal with at the moment, they're finally starting to take back my drums of resin, like my, my um, empty drums and crushing them and recycling them. And that's taken a long time for the, to get them to do it. We have a lot of hard resin, which is, just goes into landfill. Uh, there's foam dust that you know, goes into landfill. Uh, and they've tried to come up with things, but someone has to actually collect it all. But no one, none of these companies care about that until 
I think until someone comes in and goes, these guys can't do this anymore. Yeah. And that's worldwide. So what's the solution? I mean, I guess it would be repurposing that stuff. There would then be profit attached to the repurposing. That would incentivize somebody. But you start from, start from the bottom, right? Let's say the, the, the foam dust. Now, I did a thing with the concrete plants where they can, I give them the foam dust and they mix it with their concrete as like a product and it goes in. And they went, oh, yeah, this is good, but we don't have enough of it. If you, we're oh. going to do this, we want, we, we need tons. Tons. Yeah. So if someone got all of it, it's, it's like a free product that they can put in with their concrete. Filler. Yeah, like a, yeah and they're going, this costs us nothing. I've just got to get it to me. So that's the first thing. The biggest one, I think, is the acetone. Um, and because that's a, it, we make sure it goes off in the sun and it's just a solid. So that just gets thrown into, you know, landfill, gets buried and stuff like that. Once it's hardened, it's inert? Yep. Okay. But it does break down, um, you know, but it breaks down better when it's in the sun than it does when it's underground. Um, and then you've got, uh, you know, sandpaper that we use, which is paper, um, and, and it all breaks down. But I don't, I'm not the expert. These guys that are supplying me the products are the experts. So it's up to them to pull their finger out, stop just putting their hand out for their check each week and actually go, hey, I've got a solution for this because it's going to come the day when someone's going to go, you're right, they should be looking after um, all this you know, waste product instead of us filling out a, a skip bin once a month and going, send another one. You know, yeah. we. Australia right now, we're doing this thing with the cans and the bottles. I don't know if you've seen that. So a reverse recycling, a reverse vending machine. Nope, haven't seen it. So this can here. So I've got kids coming to my factory and taking all my cans. It's got a barcode on it. Mm -hmm. Just they go, 10 cents. Just push it in and just keep pushing them in. And kids are making like $1,000 a month. They had to just go and pick it up all the recycled cans and bottles. So it doesn't happen with wine bottles. And it's great. There's, there's something like... A mil, uh, no more, like a million cans a day getting recycled just on the Gold Coast. Yeah. Something, something ridiculous. I don't know the stats, but but yeah. So as far as um, that whole thing, as surfers, we're leading the, yeah. You know, I, I feel we're leading the environmental things with our, our Instagrams and stuff like that. But someone showed me a. There's a guy from Kinder Road showed me this new website, Windy. And he showed me, and it showed what what um, pollution and stuff. And it just you saw Australia had a little bit of yellow and stuff. And you just push up to China, and it was just bright red, like. And I was just like, wow, here we are trying to save the world by making a few things in the surfing industry, plastic bottles and straws and stuff like that. And then China's just gone, churn, churn, yeah. churn, churn. Yeah, it makes a difference. You've got to start somewhere, and I support all that, but um, most of the people, you go, we live in the ocean, but everyone lives on these rivers, and they just, you know, you go to Japan, you go to Asia, they just throw stuff in the river. Yeah. And it just ends up in the ocean. Yep. And we're, you know, we see it all, and, and that's why I think we're really, you know, cautious and conscious of what's going on, because we see it day to day. Directly. Mm. Um, what surf media do you follow? I mean, I follow Stab and Beach Grit. 
Um, try not to read the comments when it's about me. <laughs> <laughs> got a little thin skin when it comes to the comment section? Uh, no, I've got really thick skin. I don't give a shit. You know, you can, I mean, you, it, things don't affect me at all, you know, um, but people have their opinions and, and let them have their opinions. It's, it's great, you know, you've got to have an opinion. Um, and if people are willing to voice their opinion, that's great. If they don't use their name to it, that sucks. So, yeah. you know, and that's the only thing I don't like about it. But what's interesting is you do read the comments section if it doesn't have your name in it. Because it's entertaining, right? No, I'll read the comments section sometimes when it has my name in it. But don't you agree the comments sections have value? Yeah. They're great. They're great, but, you know, they're great, but they're hidden because they've got, you know, if I got on there and told them, you know, I've heard people say things about this and that and the other, and they're not true. It's not, they don't know. Just like with any media. Yeah, they don't know the real story. Like me and the jet ski. Let's go into that. I would love to hear that. So, so you got a ticket? No. You dumped a jet ski last year. Yeah, so let's go into that because this could be the only time I get to clear it up because everyone thinks I can't drive jet skis. Well, I can't. I'm pretty bad at it. <laughs> we have I, video evidence, actually. I've got a million jet ski stories. But I was out there on a mate's jet ski and I've only just got my licence back from losing it at the Snapper event years ago when I was uh, driving... I was driving the skis for Snapper, you know, like the... What do they call them? Water Patrol. Water Patrol. And we did all the lessons and all that stuff. And, you know, I've got more ski stories. I lost a ski years ago. But I was out there and Parker was riding for me and he won the event. And so he's jumped on the back of the ski and we've come down to Woody, you know, who's passed away now that used to be the security guy. And Woody's going, calling me, going, yeah, come in here, we're going to pick him up. And Parker's going, nah, one drive-by. So I've come close to him, did this big turnout, put a big wave over what he reckons the best barrel he's ever had in his life. <laughs> and then we did a drive-by, Paco's standing on the thing and then on the back of the sled, no life jacket. I, don't, I think I had my life jacket open and it was on the front page of the paper. We got called up to the office. I lost my licence. Anyway, I didn't get it for a while because having, I had too many jet skis. I broke too many jet skis. But anyway, going back to that story of... of at Kira, I was just out there with a with a mate of mine, and we're just dropping each other off and surfing and that. And then Corey's going, "Can we go down with down the end and do a couple of photos with Dean Hazard?" And I went, "Yeah, no problem." So I'm down there. We were way away from all the surfers, and there was just a photographer in the water shooting Dean and and Corey on the back. And then we caught two waves, and Corey goes, "I want to get really close." And I went, "All right." And then Dean didn't get the message and he jumped off the wrong side. So I couldn't go, otherwise I'd run him over. So I had to ride the wave out. And I tried to ride the wave out. I did it with Bobby Martinez a few years ago where we made it and Corey just, you know, flung off and then, um, you know, the music was put to it really well. And, and <laughs> it was like the circus clown music yeah, or something. and Mr. Clips that put that up, I didn't know, but because I changed addresses that I got $1,000 worth of fines. Oh. Um, not reporting an accident, not having the guy in the back with a life jacket and going too fast next to that guy that we put in the water to film it. 
So the, the problem was that Dean jumped off the wrong side. He jumped off the wrong side, so I had to go the wave instead of going flat and Got just it. getting close. So, But, um, yeah, so Mr. Clips owes me $2,000 worth of footage, which we're <laughs> slowly getting back, and um, and that was it. And then, But it's, it's good. It's the elephant in the room when I do do some talking every now and then. Everyone's like, tell us about the jet ski thing. That's so, funny. So I, I don't mind it. I've got thick skin and it, I just laugh it off. I think it's really funny. I've got some great jet ski stories. Yeah, yeah. Well, back to the Beach Grit comment section. Um, I agree with you. The anonymous thing does make it a little bit sticky that people can just write whatever they want to write. But the reality is even the news misreports the news all the time. Oh. Like reputable news sources misreport. Every so not that that gives the anonymous commentators an excuse or commenters. Um, but I do feel like if you can go in there with a thick skin, it gives you a really accurate or cross section of the way that the general public is viewing things. Mm -hmm. You know, you go in there with your armor on, you can kind of read it and go, holy crap, mm -hmm. you're right. The WSL shouldn't be doing this or surf media <laughs> should really be digging into this other thing over here that I hadn't thought about. You have to take it with a grain of salt, of course. Oh yeah, for sure. But I do read things that I think, you know, but I just, I just don't like it, you know, when people, people get personal about, you know, I've heard them say things about Rosie Hodge years ago and just little things where they get, just get a little, you know, sexist and, and, and bullying, you know, bullying in Australia has been you know, on the media, you know, a lot because kids commit suicide because of getting bullied so much and, Beach grit is another opportunity for people to be bullied about stuff. So, um, and I've seen one. There was another Swolnet um, did a thing once, and then people were calling people out, going, "Well, if you're going to say that, what should, who are you?" You know. And then those people did come back and say, "Hey, yeah, I'm this guy." And you go, "All right, he's got balls because he doesn't have to hide behind that name anymore." So, and I do hear. I don't know if it's true or not, but I do hear people have two names and banter against themselves no to way. make comments. That's amazing. So, you know... To I don't, what end? Why would you even do it? Just to cause some controversy. But so, they're not benefiting anything from it. But It's anonymous. I think they want to do that so that the next person goes, listen to him arguing with him, and he's arguing with himself just to get some stuff. I think that's true. I, I know I the believe guy. it. And, you People know... It's so, crazy. But, hey, it's 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 that's the media that... Uh, Beach Grit want now. Yeah. I mean, I think um, Stab's changed a little bit. And I, I, like, I like Stab and I like Sam and all the guys there. They're, they're doing a really good job because – but they have calmed down a little bit. Which I mean, their comment section has completely calmed down. And they even delete entire comments, threads, when things get out oh, of do control. They? I didn't know that. Stab does, yeah. I didn't know that. But they also – Stab does a great job at these big tent pole events, right? Like yep. the Stab in the Dark. Yep. Nobody even comes close to Stab with that stuff. I think Beach Grid's also done well by moderating their comments in the last year or two. Mm -hmm. Like if somebody does say anything really um, personal, they do delete that and yep. they do eliminate them. You can have a go at someone and have a little, you know, little tissy fit with someone. I, I've seen Mick and, Mick and Paco and Dingo at Snapper. Want to drop in on the other? They'll fight in the water. They'll call each other names, and then they're coming. Oh, sorry, mate. Yeah, but you know they're just it's it's the passion that the, that they do in surfing, and I think that's the same with those guys. I mean, the other thing too, the beach grit and stab stuff. Oh, 
um, and the, you know, even the people that listen to you know surf podcasts, I think are the harder call people. I agree. You, you don't have you know, the guys that buy eighty five percent, eighty percent of my boards wouldn't listen to this or because they're businessmen that have suits on that are working too hard to pay for the surfboard and just want to surf and be into it. But the guys that are coming to the beach and watching the surfing and, and love surfing and, and all their kids are loving surfing and the next generation of kids are listening to podcasts and watching this stuff. But most of these guys that are a lot older, you know, they're in their you know, 35s to 50-year-old, they, they don't listen to watch Stab or, yeah. or Beach Group. Yeah. So. Um, are there any up-and-coming shapers that you're looking at that you're impressed by or you see them on Instagram and you're interested oh, in? Oh, good question. Um, shapers. I mean, we're at the pointy end of the triangle, us all of us guys, you know, in the high-end stuff. And you see even here at this event, you know, there's guys with twin fins, three fins. I really think that I th I've just got to make sure. I think that guys like myself and JS and Mayhem and I think it's I think I don't think there's anyone gonna. I can't see anyone gonna get to that level anymore of volume, volume, and being just at that that end. Um, because the market's too saturated. Well, go back to surfing, Kelly. The goat, you know, he's come to this event. Look at how many people, you know, this could be his last year or he's going to do the Olympics maybe. Mick's retired, Paco's retired. Um, is there anyone in the male side of things going to be as good as those three guys were? You know, because we've got some great Brazilians like, like Gabriel. He's an amazing, amazing guy. Like, people will comment about Gabriel about himself, but I've hung out with him and you know, in Bali and stayed with him. He's, he's an incredible guy, but it, when he comes to competing, he's he's ruthless, which is, you know, what they've got to do. But I just can't see that level of rival with Andy, Mick, Paco, Kelly, you know, I don't see the next generation being as strong as where um, they'll walk in, a, they won't be able to go and have a coffee or a, Dinner. I don't. I can't see that next generation being as big, except if the Brazilians go to Brazil, Brazil, because the Brazilians are just taking over at the moment. You know, it was like the Australians were eight years, ten years, twelve years ago. Everybody other than Kelly walks around the street here in anonymity. Mm. Every one of them. They. I, I'm wondering if they're talent-wise, they're all actually as good as a lot of the world champs, but there's too many of them now. Yep. It's like there's 10 guys that are really good enough to win a world title on the world tour. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's not that pointy of the end of the stick anymore. It's not just Kelly and Andy battling it out. Mm -hmm. It's Idolo, Felipe, Julian, Jordy. You know, like, yeah, but is, is Julian and, and Jordy a Kelly, Mick, or Paco? Is, that, is he going to get They don't there? seem to hate each other. Yeah. There's no, there's no beach grit into them, you know? Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, John John Florence, like incredible, mysteric type type of guy. You know, I don't know too much about him except we share the same birthday. But he, he's, is he going to compete? Isn't he going to compete? He doesn't hate anyone. He's too aloof. Yeah, there's nothing. But he does amazing airs, and you know he 
he hurt his um, his knee in Bali and hasn't surfed for ages. And what's he going to come back? Is he you know the, there's talk that he mightn't do you know the first few events. So I don't know. I just I don't know if we're gonna have that next generation of surfers, which is going to bring up the next generation of shapers. Yeah. So I think we capitalised on it really well, all of us guys, and and I don't think you know we'll bring up that next guy with us to go. You can be the next guy, you know, like JS was used to work for me, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. And, you know, he done really well out of, you know, just grabbing onto those cocktails and going through. So, I think Gabriel is a good villain. We need somebody to come up and poke Gabriel in the eye. And John John is a potential candidate in yep. terms of talent, yep. but he doesn't have the, the desire to poke him in the eye. He, and why would you if you owe that much money? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I worry about that too. It's like too much too soon. Yeah. Like, I mean, Bob Bob Hurley's a, a, a beautiful guy and, and passionate about our surfing, and and John John's he's um he's golden child. I mean, we got Mikey Wright. So I should he's coming through, which is another guy that could be really good for surfing. Mikey's uh, great, but is he a world champ? <laughs> he surfs pretty freaking good. Um, and you know he's got his injuries at the moment, but yeah, you know, just with his mullet, and, <laughs> I know, and no, his full wheel drive, and as as most of the guys that are drinking a you know in Australia a Jim Beam can or a beer, they just can relate to Mikey Mikey Wright, you know. But then, does he even care about the world tour? Like, because Mikey could have a career just drinking the beer and doing the mullet. No, thing. I mean he doesn't drink beer and that anymore. He's, he's he wants to be. He wants to be on the circuit. He wants to do it. You know, he he loves he loves the game, and he he's got a few injuries. But I don't know. I I, I should worry about it. And I do worry about it a little bit to make our sport um, don't go plateau for a, a long period of time. I just got to make sure that we've got um, good villains coming up, good service coming up, and you know, sh- shapers that um, you know look look. Shapers that um, people like to you know, ride their boards and just lift our industry, keep on lifting it. Yeah, that's why I like about you know this Vizsla thing. Um, you know, they recognise the shaper. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've done well out of shaping, but I just like I just you know mixing with these these new guys shaping and uh, just seeing what they're doing, just trying to be different. Mm-hmm. Some stuff I, I can see that some stuff's going to work, some stuff's not. Well, but. It's just good, and I wish they did do the same thing in America. You know, the the Huntington um, contest would be a great thing for this sort of stuff. And I they've agree. tried it over there. I've shaped boards there, but I don't know the the American public. Um, it's a big country with like how I many two hundred and something million people compared to f- you know twenty two million people or something in Australia. We live around this ocean, but. Um, I just don't think that America's really adapted the whole shaping thing. There's a lot of shapers and a lot of glassing companies in America. Yeah. Um, do you ride any other shapers' surfboards? I, um, what do I ride? I do, I was riding a Simon Anderson when he was working for us when we did the basing. I had these, just pulled this old 6.4 out of, 
was a second and I took it out D-bar. Um, I've ridden the Mayhem one, the Mick one. Um, what else have I ridden? These are pretty isolated experiences. Yeah, yeah. It's I'm not sure. it's not a part of your regular routine to no, get on other equipment. And no, I you know, I ride. Uh, there was a period of my shaping career, you know, and surfing career that I rode all the boards that didn't go well for the surfers, and it really affected my surfing. <laughs> and this was a five year period that I didn't make myself. I don't make myself boards. I just like the the boards I ride. I. I don't want the team riders' experience. I'll ride their boards, but I'll go and take the boards straight out of the stock room because it's double layer glass. It's what it's what you're going to ride, and I'm going to make sure that that feels good. So, but yeah, I um, I don't have a where I go and have this board. And, oh, that board's going to make me surf good. I just ride all sort, types of different boards. I actually rode a motorized surfboard in the last last Ohm as well, and ate shit. Well, tell me about it. <laughs> Uh, someone gave me this motorized surfboard. He's a guy, an uh, adaptive surfer, uh, wants me to make him a board for it. And Barney Miller, who's the world champion, I make his boards. And I went, yeah, that's a good challenge for me. I like challenges. Um, so I've been trying it out and I really liked it. I, we blew up the motor in, within two weeks and then I sent it back on a new motor. So I think, all right, well, let's see how it goes and rode in the last big home as well. And it does eight knots a little hand control on it and I, you're supposed to turn the motor off when you get on the wave and I got halfway down this wave looking at a six foot barrel and I forgot to turn it off and the motor just ripped out I went over the falls oh my gosh <laughs> and then it's, yeah it goes back to like the jet ski story yeah, so <laughs> no one captured it luckily but um <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm really thinking that um just these motorized boards uh you know the skateboard motorized stuff is really cool and it's my five-year plan to have a, 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 a really fun motorised board that you can actually, not not ride in competition, but as I'm you know, 55 years old, I just feel that whether it's motorised surfboards or wave pools, I'm going to be surfing till I'm 65 years old maybe, if not more. I would, yeah, I would go longer than that, man. Yeah. It only gives you 10 years. Uh, so, I mean, I would think the limitation is the weight, First of all, right? It's got to be heavy. As yeah, it's ten kilo. This one, okay. which is I don't know what that is in pound. So, can you do turns on it? Yeah, yeah, you can. It's a seven one. It's just that's the stock model. There is a six six. I think the Liam McNamara was riding at pipe and broke a few and stuff like that. So it's called wave jet. Yeah, there's the there's, oh yeah, I've yeah, seen it. yeah. And I just went all right, but then I spoke to another skateboard company that's got a smaller motor in their skateboards, and they go, yeah, we could probably. So we're just working on. It. It's not my. It's not what I do every day. It's just something that I go. I got to get to. So it's not. Uh, obviously, there's no propellers on it. It's just shooting. It's jets. Like jets to jets. Out the tail or out the bottom. In the back third of the board. Interesting. It's fun as. Is it? I went. It's just. It's yeah. To break up surfing crappy waves. It's just a novelty. It can be like the last well at Kira. On the Saturday morning, from Coolangatta to Kira, there was I counted over seven hundred people, and twenty-one skis. And I was like, "All right, I'm going to get the motorized out." That's the only reason I did it, because I don't want to go out there. I'm I'm older. I'm not angry like we were when we were young, and you know, fight and drop in like Dingo does. <laughs> <I> hope he <laughs> listens to this. Um, 
so I just went out there just for a bit of novelty and you know it didn't work and I you know I I learned something about it so when I make these boards for Barney and this other fella that I know that um, I've got to secure the motor a lot better for them because we've had them in the river trying it on this board but you know they need the special board that I've been making so and then I just think a nice six four pintail and snap is good keep that motor in get some really good barrels and don't have to parry, you know, paddle against the current. Yeah. It does eight knots. Oh, okay. Amazing. All right. Well, Darren, this has been a pleasure. I'm glad this finally came together. Yeah, cheers, cheers mate. man. Thanks. My little blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy One day grow up and be distressed One day Everything Darren and I discussed, including his jet ski wipeout, that's well worth revisiting, by the way, is available on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Thank you, DH. And make sure to stock up on Slow Tide towels. Slowtide.co. Use the promo code podcast to save 10%. All their cotton is certifiably sourced through the Cotton Leads program, which ensures that it's responsibly produced. All their polyester products are made from 100% recycled post-consumer waste, primarily plastic bottles which are transformed into premium polyester fibers, and most importantly, the products are built to last. My year-old towel is still vibrant in color, hasn't faded a bit. So the other detail about Slow Tide is that the whole impetus for the brand was to create a new medium for art. So they do these collaborations with artists and photographers like Clark Little, but even their standard patterns are just beautiful to have around. Really, really top quality product that I'm honored to be able to promote on this show. Again, slowtide.co, use promo code podcast, and they'll help keep us in business. Thanks. And thanks to the Timponi family, Timponi Surfboards, and their Maui Leaf Light project. If you already have a monthly donation set up, you're already entered to win. If not, you can contribute any size donation through the month of April, and then you'll be entered. We'll randomly select a winner on May 1st. The winner will win a custom-made pill model built to their specs and only be responsible for shipping costs. You can do that at surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for your support. I'm thrilled to be able to do this work. Lots more great podcasts to come from Australia and California and beyond. All right? So until next week, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor, reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on. Surprise, I always hoped.